Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. After the American Revolutionary War, our founders, having just thrown off the yoke of British oppression, understood that the citizens of our new nation must always retain the right and the means to prevent the rise of any future tyranny. The Constitution and Bill of Rights strictly limit the power of the central government while reserving for the states and the people of the states the authority to restrain and punish the federal government when it oversteps its constitutional limits. The ratifiers of the Constitution gave us mechanisms to enforce this restriction on federal authority. The powers granted to the central government were specifically limited to those enumerated in Article I, Section 8, and by the Tenth Amendment. The states or their citizens retained whatever powers were not listed. In our writings and speeches, those who ratified the Constitution made it clear and obvious that the federal government is the creation of the states, not their equal partner in constitutional authority. As with any contract between equal partners, the parties may refuse to comply with any edict that falls outside the parameters outlined in the original agreement. In addition, Any entity created by those equal partners cannot blatantly disregard the restrictions imposed on it by those that created the entity in the first place. This concept was clearly reaffirmed by the states in their ratifying documents, as well as by the men who wrote the Constitution and championed its ratification by the states. My guest is Michael Meharry. You know, Michael, you were here in April of 2013, exactly two years ago. And at that point, you had just published a book, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. Uh, It was a fascinating book, and if any of you have not read it, I suggest you go and read it because it does outline incredibly well this subject that we are talking about. So it is a pleasure, Michael, to have you back again on Freedom Forum Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Dan. It's, it's great to be on. It's hard to believe it's been two years. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. Well, you know, time flies when you're having fun, and I hope you've been having <laughs> as much fun as we have. Absolutely. You know, this subject of nullification is something that will not go away because it is the rightful remedy. The problem is it's everything about it is clouded over by people who really don't want to use that tool for any number of selfish and, and reasons. So 
Let's start out uh, and discuss, first of all, to you, define nullification. What is my uh, nullification to Michael Meharry? Well, this is how we always define it at the uh, Tenth Amendment Center. It's any act or set of acts that serve to make a federal edict or a federal law or a federal program or a federal statute null, void, or simply unenforceable within the borders of a given state. So practical example might be uh, a state that legalizes medical marijuana. It's essentially nullifying that uh, federal law that prohibits marijuana for any use whatsoever. Uh, this can be used for any number of uh, different issues. For instance, uh, one might nullify federal gun laws that are deemed unconstitutional. So it's any act that has that, that impact, that makes the law unenforceable and essentially void within the borders of a single state. You know, when we talked two years ago, you, you made an example. You gave an example that I thought was really incredible. You said that we as parents nullif- do employ nullification every single day of our lives with our children. Absolutely. I, I actually use this story a lot, uh, not really a story, but an analogy uh, when I speak. And I call it wardrobe nullification. And it's something that we practice here at uh, the Meharry household on a not too frequent basis because it's not usually necessary. But we, we do have two teenage daughters, and anybody that's raised teenage girls knows that sometimes they'll push the limits of what is acceptable and appropriate attire. And, uh, my wife is really good at this. She'll see one of our lovely young daughters come out with something that's uh, not quite acceptable. And, and uh, very quickly we'll say, uh, no, ma'am, young lady, you are not walking out of the house wearing that. And uh, They go and change their clothes, and that's uh, that's nullification in a nutshell. It's the, the entity or the people with the actual authority asserting that authority and saying no. And as you mentioned uh very well in, in your opening statement, the states are actually the ones with the authority. They created the federal government. They delegated the powers to the federal government that it's allowed to exercise. And uh, as the creator, it ultimately has the authority over its creation. So uh, the states have the authority to say no, and it's a very effective means and, and was actually an intended means of our founding generation to put a check on federal power. We have this wonderful constitution that created a limited federal government with uh, specific delegated powers. But, you know, the question always comes up, well, how do you keep it within those powers? And the founding generation, uh, particularly James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, made it very clear that they always expected the states to serve as that check. And unfortunately, the states have not done a very good job of that. And I think that's a large part of the reason that we have a federal government that is out of control and overbearing and you know, doing things like telling us what size toilet uh, we can have and what kind of light bulbs we can put in our fixtures. We're taking a quick commercial break here on Freedom Forum Radio. More with Michael Meharry right after this. Well, there's no question, that, and, and this concept to me is really critical, and that is that these the 13 states did get together and they created a separate entity. I mean, that concept is, is really critical to understanding the, the balance of power, not, not even the balance of power, but the actual power 
that the states are supposed to hold over the federal government. That's really the basis uh, for our freedom, and yet we're not able to exercise that with any reasonable manner. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a, a huge problem, is that Americans don't understand the most fundamental aspect of, of their own government. And that's the fact that ultimately sovereignty lies with the people. You know, it's not with any government at all. The people are, are the sovereign entity. And the people first delegated political authority to their state governments. And we had uh, 13 states that were essentially, and not essentially, they were sovereign nations. Uh, at the end of the Revolutionary War, and they bound together under the Articles of Confederation and, and, then, and then later under the Constitution. But those political entities that the people originally created were never dissolved. They simply used those, uh, those 13 states, those 13 separate political entities, to delegate certain powers to another level of government that we call the federal government. They didn't give away any more power than what they gave away, and they didn't dissolve the sovereignty that they already had. It was pre-existing, and it, and it still exists. And people don't understand that. And that's until you grasp that point, it's hard to understand nullification. Most Americans think that we're one big glob nation, and that the people in Washington D.C. dictate what we do, and the state governments exist for I don't know. I guess for show uh, in, in this day and age, and they have it completely upside down and backwards. The bulk of the power remains with the states. The federal government is meant to be limited, and it should be limited. Who wants a monopoly? Monopolies aren't good. Everybody knows this when it comes to the economic world, and yet we have so many people that clamor for centralized monopoly, federal government, and it's really a bad idea. Well, you know, the whole concept of sovereignty is, is really what we're talking about here. And, and this was a marked departure from the way the world had been run up to that point. I mean, we were under the control of a sovereign, King George. He lived over in England, and yet he felt that he owned us, he could tell us all what to do, and, and he imposed his will directly upon us. Our founder said, no, wait a minute, we're going to fight a war of independence so we will be an independent people, primarily so that we can exercise our right of individual sovereignty. I mean, that's what it was all about. Is that not true? Absolutely. That's correct. And, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the Constitution and, and the, uh, you know, the actual copy of the Constitution, and you see we the people in great big letters, that actually was done for a very specific and important reason, and, and it is a very powerful message. It tells you who is sovereign. Whenever the king used to write an edict, he would say, you know, the king, and the king's name would be in those giant letters. So under the British system of government, you would see King George III, and then whatever followed after it, because King George III was the sovereign. Well, in in our system, we, the people, are the sovereign, and and you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's it's important for people to understand that, that we're not at the whim of the government. We, we control the government. The government is, is our servant, not our master. And uh, I think if people really stopped and thought about it, I think most everybody would say, yeah, that's, that's what we want. We don't want the government to lord over us and, and be our master. And yet 
people are so caught up in what can the government do for me that they're losing the bigger picture and, and quite frankly, failing to understand just how much control is being taken away from them as individuals. And, and it's, uh, I think, quite frightening when you really start to think about all the different things that the, the political class in Washington, D.C. dictates to the serfs here across America. Well, you know, what we really have is an oligarchy right now. Uh, we are controlled in Washington by a small group of professional government people who have tons and tons and tons of money, and therefore they really they really dictate how things are done. Money is what controls votes. Uh, it controls not just in Congress. It controls the Supreme Court. It contro- Everyone up there is under the control of money. And, you know, what really happened is everything that you've just said is true. It is the way it was uh, designed to be. But in a practical point of view, unfortunately, that power of the states and the power of the people has been taken and stolen from us by design. To me, the two, the two greatest culprits in that were the 16th and 17th Amendment. That is what allows the federal government now to blackmail the states to have their way. Well, I don't disagree with that at all. And, you know, I would add a third thing to that list, and, and I've already mentioned it, the fact that the the state governments have been so reluctant and so remiss in uh, flexing their own muscles and serving as that check uh, that was intended. You know, James Madison laid it out in Federal 46, even before the Constitution was, was ratified. And he said the state's should use these tools at their disposal to hold the federal government in check. The good news, you know, we don't want to be all doom and gloom because I like being an optimist. The good news is we're starting to see state governments flex their muscles on various issues, and we're seeing that it can be effective, and hopefully this is the beginning of something that will continue to grow and and maybe begin to rein in this federal power to some degree. You talked with, with us about a concept called practical nullification. What do you mean by that? Well, it might be helpful to, to get a little bit into the definition of, uh, of the words. There's, there's actually two, two definitions of, of nullification, and if you go back even to uh, the early American history, you know, back in the uh, 1700s when they were ratifying and, and composing the Constitution, there's actually two definitions or two ways you can look at nullification. One of them is a legal definition. There's, there's actually a legal term, nullification, and, and it literally is a legal term that makes a law literally void. So, for instance, if the Supreme Court strikes down something as unconstitutional, it is nullifying that law. It's making it off the books. Uh, it's gone. It's a legal term. It's a legal reality. Uh, there's also what you would call common dif- definition of nullification. It's used in common language, and it means to to uh, to make something practically ineffectual. So, you know, they'll talk about uh, a pitcher nullifying a hitter, uh, makes the hitter not be able to the, that hitter not be able to hit the ball. So, you can kind of look at nullification in, in either one of those two ways. Uh, some people, when you say nullification, they automatically think about the legal definition. And they think that when the state says a law is unconstitutional, that it somehow removes it from the federal books. Well, as true as that might be in a theoretical sense, 
in today's system, that's not going to happen. Nobody's going to recognize a legal nullification, but we can still practically nullify. We can still take action that will make the law unenforceable and essentially off the books. So it remains on the books, and yet it's not enforceable at all, so it might as well not be there. Uh, for instance, on most uh, interstate highways, you know, the speed limit might be 65 miles per hour or 70 miles per hour. Well, nobody's driving that. <laughs> so essentially that speed limit has been nullified. The law's on the books, but it's not practical to enforce it to any degree, so the, the law is nullified. And that's really, from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, the tactic that we are using through a broad range of issues to stop federal overreach. We are taking action that not going to take the laws, federal laws off the books, but it's going to make it impossible for the federal government with the resources that it has to enforce them. So let me give an example and make it uh, a little bit easier to wrap, for people to wrap their head around. Let's use the Second Amendment as an example. We've got these federal gun laws, and let's just say for, uh, for argument's sake that the federal government passes a law banning a certain type of, uh, certain type of weapon an assault weapon, whatever the heck an assault weapon is. So they ban an assault weapon. The states may not be able to do anything to take that law off the books, but the state certainly doesn't have to cooperate with the federal government in enforcing its law. So the state can simply say, okay, federal government, if you want to have a ban on handguns, you try to enforce it. Well, the dirty little secret is they can't enforce it. They do not have the resources, they do not have the personnel to enforce all of their federal laws, all of their edicts, all of their programs across all 50 states. If enough states simply say, no, we're not going to help, you can collapse something without even, you know, having to, uh, even having to take an aggressive action against it. Perfect example would be Obamacare. If enough states simply said, you know what, we're not going to lift a finger to help you, uh, implement or enforce Obamacare. We're not going to let our insurance commissioners force the, enforce the, uh, the mandate coverage and stuff. If somebody has a problem, they have to go to the federal government. We're not going to set up the exchanges. We're not going to provide any money for uh, you know the navigators. We're not going to do anything. If enough states did that, it would effectively repeal Obamacare because the federal government doesn't have the resources or the personnel to implement it on its own. So, from a practical standpoint, this is the tactic that we're taking at the Tenth Amendment Center to nullify through, like I said, a broad uh, broad range of different policies. And the beauty of it is that even the Supreme Court agrees that the states don't have to cooperate with the federal government or to assist or to provide resources for any federal action, even if it's perfectly constitutional. They've held this since back in 1842. Federal government passes an edict or passes a federal law. It is up to the federal government to enforce it. The states can say, do it yourself. And since federal government can't do it itself, we have a powerful tool in our hands to essentially make these things collapse under their own weight. And this was exactly what James Madison suggested in Federalist 46. He talked about um, a, a powerful tool that the states had, and he listed out a certain uh, set of uh, steps that states could take, starting with complaining. And if complaining didn't work, one of the things he said was refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. So that's what we're pushing very vigorously at the 10th Amendment Center. We have the legal basis on our side, so it gets rid of this whole debate about whether or not 
you know, the state can resist. The Supreme Court even agrees so we can move forward and pull the rug out from under a lot of these different federal programs. So that in a nutshell is what I'm talking about when I say practical nullification. It's not taking the laws off the books. It's not trying to stop the federal government from enforcing it, simply saying states aren't going to cooperate. We're going to follow Madison's advice. And uh, as Madison said, it's it's a tool that can create tremendous impediments and obstructions to federal programs. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man, I get joy in everything. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning.